story of Joseph in prison shows that God can take a jail cell and use it to shape a life. Joseph had every reason to be bitter and focused on his miserable situation, but instead, this week's story showed him caring for his fellow prisoners while persevering through a challenging situation. Let's listen as Myron shares three life lessons Joseph learned and how we can apply them in our lives today. Here's Myron. Well, good morning. I think we're just going to, that was a great message already. Let's just pray and go home, right? We're just going to end early today. <laughs> Some of you, yeah, you're really good. Hey, man, if you were really excited about that option. Hey, but we're going we're gonna to celebrate Palm Sunday together, so happy Palm Sunday. Glad you're here, and we're going to go back into the book of Genesis. I know last week Chris Dew kicked it back off. Uh, we've been studying the whole book of Genesis, and we got through chapter 38. Last week we did 39, and after 38 we took a break and did the six weeks of Bridging the Gap, which you just heard, which was incredible, and God is on the move. And so we're diving back into the book of Genesis, and today we'll be in chapter 40 of the book of Genesis, and we'll go through the whole chapter today. And just real quick, if you're new, like Genesis is the book of beginnings, and in the, very, the first two chapters is God created, which really the implications for you and I is you were made on purpose for a purpose, you're not an accident. And then we see the middle section of the book of Genesis, the dysfunction of God's people, which if you've been through this study with us, it's comforting. To know that they got it wrong and we get it wrong and there's a lot of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and it highlights the dysfunction of my life ain't so bad in comparison to God's chosen people. And that's been the middle section of the book and then we've slowed down now for the last 12 chapters on this one guy named Joseph. As if to say, hey, in the level of dysfunction over, the, over how many years, there's one guy who's going to get it right. Not perfectly, but he's going to get it right, and he is an example. So we're pausing and slowing down and spending 12 chapters on his life. Chapter 40, we're going to resume the story of Joseph. And I hope today's message will be a comfort for you. If your life doesn't look like what you thought your life would look like, this is for you. Joseph probably finds himself in that same point. Let's start. Genesis 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, comma, stop. Okay, are we going to take four words at a time? Maybe. It's going to be another hour. I'm just kidding. Before we listen, like sometime after this, what has just happened to give us some framework to, to, to understand how Joseph got to where he is? Okay, when he was 17 years old, he had a dream. And he was the youngest brother of, of, of 12 sons. So he has 11 older brothers. And, um, and he was the youngest son. He was the favorite son. And dad made sure everybody knew he was the favorite son by giving him this special coat. His brothers hated him. He had this dream. He told his brothers, hey, guys, listen, we're out in the field. We're, we're gathering up sheaves of grain. And my sheath stays upward. And yours all bow down to me. And his brothers like, what do you mean we're going to bow down to you? What do you mean we're going to worship you or bow down to you? Get out of here with that. And you, and, and you would think that, uh, you know, he would have learned his lesson over those threats after the first dream. He's like, guys, I got a second dream that I had. Mom, Dad, you come in. This time my dream, the sun, the moon, and the stars are all bowing down to me. So Mom and Dad, you're going to bow down to me too and serve me. And Dad's like, okay, son, I love you, but this is a stretch, man. Like, what are you talking about? And then one day, the 11 older brothers are out in the field working the herd, and, and Dad sends Joseph out to uh, check on the boys. And so Joseph's walking out with his coat on, and the brother's like, let's kill him. Let's get rid of this dude. We're so frustrated and tired of this. 
let's kill him. They have like this committee meeting, like how should we kill him? How should we do it? How do we pull this off? And one brother speaks up and says, we can't kill him. We don't want the blood in our hands. There's some Ishmaelites. Let's sell them to them and just get them out of here. We'll make some money. It seems like a good business deal. So that's what they do. They sell them to the Ishmaelites that are on their way to Egypt. So now Joseph finds himself in Egypt as a slave. And we saw last week that he got sold into Potiphar's house. And, and he's a slave in the captain of the guard to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and the captain of the guard, Potiphar's house. And he works his way up because he's a man of character. He's doing the right thing regardless of his circumstance. And he finds himself as the chief slave. Like he's in charge of Potiphar's entire estate. And then Potiphar's wife, who we call Hotifer, is uh, wanting, a, wanting a little taste of the young slave. He's, you know, whatever reason. And so she keeps trying to seduce him and, and, and lure him in. And he keeps saying no. And then one time she calls him in. She tries to seduce him. He won't do it. He runs out, leaves his coat. She's holding his coat. She yells rape, tells, tells Potiphar he tried to rape me. And now Potiphar's like, what do I do? Like, I got my wife here, and I got this slave, and I know that he's a slave, and he's a man of character and integrity, and I know Joseph wouldn't do this, but it's my wife. I'm not going to sleep on the couch for the rest of my life. I got to choose her over him. And in that culture, he should have been executed. Joseph should have been executed. But we see that he gets thrown into prison. He's going to spend a life sentence in prison, and that's where we pick up. Sometime after this, sometime time after all of that has happened and he was in Potiphar's house and the sexual allegation took place and throws him in prison sometime. We don't know how long he's been in prison, but roughly we can estimate he's been in prison probably about 10 or 12 years. Uh, all in all, and I'll do the math for you based on when he was 17, sold into slavery to when he's going to be freed from slavery. It's about 11 years or 13 years, 13 years. And so he's been in slavery for about 11 years. He's in prison now, maybe for a couple. So he's been in prison or in slavery for 10 or 12 years to this point in chapter 40. He's had a rough decade. And so let's go on. Sometime after this, the cupbearer and the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the lord of the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Remember that title? In the prison where Joseph was confined, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. So these two, these two people get thrown in the prison. And my first question is, why did they get thrown in the prison? These are not just servants. These are not just slaves to the Pharaoh. They're not just the guy who would bring the drink, and they're not the waiter or the butler. They are the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. They are highly esteemed officials in the palace. They would have had access to Pharaoh all the time. They would have been pip, um, privy to high-level conversations. The responsibility that they would have been given is to keep the Pharaoh alive. Feed him good food and give him good drink. All right, and you're at his beck and call. You're in his chambers all of the time. And here's what I think's happening. This is my speculation. Not so, we're not so clear in the Bible of why they got thrown in prison. But if there was going to be an assassination attempt on the Pharaoh, which would have been the, the most powerful man in the known world at this time, the largest empire at the known world at that time, if there had been an assassination attempt, it probably would have came through poisoning. Right, So whoever's making the food and making the drink, everything that passes through Pharaoh's mouth would have to go through these two. And if there was an assassination attempt and it happened, one of those two guys would be held accountable to it. 
And so there are two incredibly trusted officials that are thrown into prison. And here's probably what happened is, I think there's probably a chief taste tester in the kingdom. And the chief taste tester took a bite and took a drink and plopped over dead. And they went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, one of y'all messed up. And we don't know who. Both of you go to prison until we can launch an internal investigation and figure this thing out. So these two high officials find themselves in prison, and not just in any prison, in the prison of the captain of the guard. And the captain of the guard, another translation is the captain of the executioners. This is the secret service, right? These are the ones that are meant to keep the palace safe and secure and keep Pharaoh alive from military or other attacks. And so they're thrown in this prison, and this prison really is is execution row. It is death row because people that go here are the ones who've committed high treason or some type of attempt at the uh, Pharaoh's um, uh, life, taking his life. And so that's where they find themselves, and this is where Joseph is. And again, I think there's a correlation. Do you see the, 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 the phrase, captain of the guard? I love this. It's most likely Pharaoh's prison, or not Pharaoh's prison, Potiphar's prison, right? Because Potiphar has the title captain of the guard, and he, he promoted Joseph to chief slave. And then he knows his wife and that whole thing, and he had to get rid of him. He threw him into prison, but he threw him in his own prison where he could keep him alive. Because he knew that Joseph was a man of integrity and character, but he couldn't choose the slave over his wife. It seems likely, we're not for sure, it seems likely it's Potiphar's, pri- or Potiphar's prison, and this is where the chief cupbearer and chief baker go, entrusted to the captain of the guard in his prison to be taken care of while they launch so, so-called internal investigation. See, J- Joseph has been given responsibility in this prison as well. Right? He, he is now chief inmate in this prison. He is given responsibility of caring for and taking, he has keys to sell doors to get in and take care of the prisoners and the inmates. He's chief inmate. And I know that's a a title that's not to be envied. We don't have bumper stickers that says, my boy, he's a chief inmate in prison. It's not something to be proud of, but it's a title. It shows that he's got integrity. It shows that he's earned the right to be trusted even as an inmate. Seems like it might be Potiphar. Same title. He trusts Joseph once with his whole entire household. Now he's trusting him with his prison. And we see a 17-year-old boy who lost his freedom by his brothers being sold into slavery, persevering through this 8, 10, 12-year journey of being in the wrong place. And Joseph's still doing the right thing to be entrusted with responsibility. He's caring for these two inmates. And then one night this happened, verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined, confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So we asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Why are you troubled? Why are you upset? That seems like a pretty dumb question, right? They're on death row. And Joseph comes down and checking on the inmates. He's like, hey, why are you so sad today? Seriously, bro, I'm, I'm literally going to be executed. Do you know where I came from? I was at one of the highest esteemed official positions in the palace, and now I'm here, and you're looking at me saying, why are you having a bad day? Why are you so downcast? Why are you so sad? He's doing his rounds, and he notices someone having a bad day for people who have bad days. He was able to see some distinct difference about their face and their demeanor, their body language and their their aura. Like there's something troubling these individuals more so than what would trouble you being on death row. And so I got three life lessons I think Joseph has learned 
through his journey thus far. And there are three life lessons that you and I need to learn. And Joseph is going to learn them the hard way. And oftentimes it takes us learning things the hard way. And so hopefully we can glean and learn from Joseph's story. The first point and life lesson is this. Any title or position we have is to serve others. Any title or position that you have or have been given or received should be stewarded and leveraged to serve others. Look at the change in this guy, the 17-year-old punk boy who had a dream, made it all about himself, probably flaunted his dreams in front of his brothers, was immature, egotistical, arrogant about it, now is using his title and his influence to serve others. We don't see him mistreating the inmates. We don't see him leveraging his authority and his power as chief inmate, but he's noticing those around him who are having a bad day, who are suffering in some capacity, who are troubled by something. And he steps into their cell and says, hey, what's going on? How can I help? I've been entrusted to take care of you. I'm using my title to serve you And Joseph's not soaking in his misery. He doesn't have a victim mentality. He's not full of bitterness that bleeds into his other people's relationships. Because Joseph very well could have looked at those guys and said, what do you mean you're having a bad day? I got betrayed by my own flesh and blood 11 years ago and sold into slavery. I got falsely accused of sexual misconduct with a woman who I did not touch and never would touch, but I got the accusations that got me thrown into this pit. I've done nothing wrong. He could have said that. He could have soaked in his misery victim mentality of it's everybody else's fault. I'm falsely imprisoned. But Joseph, he's 28 years old now. 11 years have passed. And he's persevered through some really hard things, and he's learned a thing or two. Because back then, 17-year-old Joey, he had a dream. It was about himself. People will serve me. Even my own family will serve me. But it's taken Joseph some extreme hard circumstances for him to learn this life lesson of, hey, everything that you have should be for the betterment of other people. It's not about you, Joey. It's not about you. Take your title. Take your influence and serve other people. It's often in the hardest times. And it's true for you and I. When we go through hard things, it's often when that develops a God-like character in us. When we long suffer and we persevere through something that we can then begin to see the faithfulness and the goodness of God despite the circumstances so he can grow us and strengthen us and affirm us and call us up to be who we were meant to be. Joseph, he's, he's, he's learning this the hard way. He's using his title and position to serve others. And you know who else struggled with this? Jesus' disciples. Think about this. Think about Jesus' disciples. They struggle with it. I'm sure maybe you struggle with it. I know I struggle with this. I have a title. I have a position. I have a a platform. I have a microphone. I have influence over people's lives. And a lot of times I want to make it about me. And I I can't go anywhere in, in the area without running into somebody and spending two hours talking. And my wife is frustrated. She's like, we can't go anywhere. And I often want to say, yeah, that's right, because I did that. Look how popular I am. Look look at how good I am at my job. And God wants to remind me, Myron, it's not about you. I've given you your gifts, your talents, your abilities. I've allowed you to have the platform that you've had. Steward it well. Stay humble in that. And leverage it to serve other people so that they can receive salvation and experience the goodness of God because of you. Jesus' disciples, I'm sure they had an egotistical mindset too. They did. Because Jesus looked at his disciples and said, hey, guys, I'm about to go to the capital. I'm about to go to Jerusalem. 
I'm about to be handed over to the officials, the, 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 the religious elite, the high ruling officials. They're going to torture me. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. And I'm, I'm about to do this on a day called Palm Sunday. On Lamb Selection Sunday, say, I'm going there, and I'm going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and I have to be killed and crucified and the sacrifice for humanity. And they go, no, 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 Jesus, no way. We will not let that happen. Peter looks Jesus in the eye and says, not a chance will I let that happen. We will fight. We will go down with you because we, th- we want you to go to Jerusalem to get the crown, not the cross. We want you to politically have a revolution and overthrow the Roman government and reinstate rule and reign here. And guess what, Jesus? We're your 12 followers. We're going to be your cabinet members. We're going to be your chief officials. And we're going to have rank and title and position and influence. And they're bickering on this journey on the road. And Jesus says, what are you bickering about? And they're not willing to say. And then two of his followers, James and John, their brothers, Another time they pulled Jesus aside and said, hey, Jesus, hey, when this whole thing goes down the way we want it to go down, make us one and two in your earthly rule. We got our mom in on it, too. She's good for it, bro. She'll, talk, she'll, she'll come talk to you as well and let you know that we're good and we need to be one and two. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't get leadership in my kingdom. You don't understand what it means to be great in my kingdom. Every title, every position, everything that you have should be used to serve God and serve others, not yourself, your ego, and your pride. But here in a modern America, the type of Christianity we like to serve is voodoo Christianity. I rub a little lamb and Jesus comes out and he can benefit my life. This should enhance my life. So I pray a little. I read my Bible a little. I give my time. I serve others. You know, I I use my time, my talents and my treasures to God so that with the condition, he will bless me. I put my time in here so that it goes better for me out there. And we want this voodoo type of Christianity where there's a blessing or a promise that comes with it. But that's not how it works. Jesus looks at his disciple, the disciple says, that's not how it works. That's not what leadership and following me looks like. Because Joseph at 17, he had the promise. He had the dream. He knew that God was going to do something great in his life, but he made it all about him. And it seems like when we do that, there's often hard circumstances that we have to go through in order to receive the humility that we need to be great in the kingdom of God. And I wonder if Jesus is looking at the story of Joseph when his disciples are bickering and going, man, if you, like, if you only knew what happened to him and it's about to happen to you because you think you're going to have a dream and greatness, but you're going to have to go through some hard things. I'm about to be killed. You're going to be persecuted. And that's how you are going to achieve greatness. The disciples see leadership in the world as a hierarchy, titles and positions and authority and influence. That's how the way the world did it back then. That's the way the world does it now. And Jesus looks at his followers, and I think he's going to look at us too, if he could in the eye and say, not so with you. Not so with you. It's not about you. If you want leadership the way that Christ asks us to be leaders, to be difference makers, to be followers of him, be a slave, Jesus says. Be a slave. Be a servant 
of all. If you want to be great, be the least. If you want to be first, be last. Whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want to be great, serve others. That's the economy, or that's how it looks like. And Jesus modeled this. Jesus said, look at my life. I have the greatest title of all time. I am the son of man. I am the Messiah, the savior of the world. If anybody had a title that people should bow down and worship him, it was Jesus. He said, I did not come to serve, but to serve and give my life away as a ransom for many. Jesus says, don't miss this. Don't let the world pollute your, your vision of what leadership and influence looks like. Use your titles. Serve other people just as Jesus modeled it. And you have titles. You have influence. It might be over a few. It might be over many. But you have it. Because you might have title cousin, brother, sister, friend, coworker, mom, dad, son, daughter, sibling, manager, owner, teacher, uncle, aunt, coach, you name it. You have a title in one way, shape, or form that leverages influence over people. How are you stewarding that? Because oftentimes the world says, you know what, that title's for you. You earned that corner office. You earned partner. You earned manager. You earned owner. You started that business. It's all about you. You got your own practice. You got promoted to that level of teaching in the academic world. It's all about you and your benefit, your success, your vision, your agenda. That's what the world says and celebrates that. And Jesus is saying, not so with you. Use every title and position that you have. Be different. As a Jesus follower, we need to be different. Because God wants you to be great. Hear me. He wants you to be great. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to be insanely wealthy. But he says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven and not here on earth. Don't fall prey to our culture of wealth here on this earth, but store for yourself up treasure in heaven. Don't miss the point because here's the point. People. People are the point. Not stuff, not accolades, not your own resume or your own life. It's other people. That's the point. Because the only thing that is eternal is you and other people. People, we have souls. We are eternal beings that will live forever. And so that's the only thing that gets into heaven is people. But oftentimes our own success and agenda is to the demise or detriment of other people. And so do we invest in people? Do we care about people? Do we love people? Do we serve people? People are the point. Joseph is starting to understand this. It's about people. It's about others. He's serving others. And here's the thing about others. They have dreams too. The cupbearer and the baker, they have a troubling dream, both of them, in the same night. You ever had dreams that were so real that you wake up and your heart's beating and you're out of breath? It's crazy. I've had a few. They have these very vivid dreams and they're disturbed. That's why they're disturbed. That's why they're downcast. And Joseph says, all right, what's going on? And they said, verse 8, they said to him, we have dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me the dreams. 17-year-old boy Joey, he knows about dreams. He had a few in his life. He understands how God can work through dreams. And through 11 years of slavery and some time in prison, things have changed. There's a humility now. To where he says, hey, the interpretation isn't for me. The interpretation's for God. It's for him, to, for him to say, for him to do, not for me. But there's still a confidence that Joseph has. He's like, tell me the dream. 
There's still confidence that he has, but he's found humility through the process of suffering, of saying it's all God's, it's all his plan, his purpose. He interprets them. It's not about me, but I still have the confidence of knowing that God has equipped me and gifted me to have an understanding of dreams to maybe interpret it for you guys. I love this. He's got confidence, but he doesn't have arrogance. He's got humility of knowing it's all God's, but he knows that he has a gift and he will steward that gift with fear and trembling before the Lord to honor him and serve him in this way. He's learning to steward his gift rather than making his gift all about him. So he says, tell me the dream. Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer goes first. He tells him the dream. He says to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine there were three branches as soon as it budded, it blossoms, the blo- its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph says, and this is the interpretation. I love the confidence. He's not like, well, maybe, possibly. He's like, this is it. It's a humble confidence. It wasn't that Joseph was like, well, I don't know, you know. He has the ability to discern from God where he's gifted with humility to bring this blessing to these individuals. And it says this, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now, that's the interpretation. It's over. Okay, great. I gave it to you, cupbearer. Now, this is Joseph saying, this ain't, this ain't from the, the Lord. This is from me. Only remember me, verse 14. When it is well with you, please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and to get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. I love this. He interprets it and he says, but listen, help me out. Do a brother a solid because you're about to go back into the palace and have the ear of the most powerful man in all the known world. You can, you can get me out of this pit that I am unjustly in. And sometimes we have this idea of like, hey, just have faith, right? Just have faith. Just sit there. And if God wants you to be in that prison, you're in that prison for a reason. And woe is me, victim mentality. I guess if God wants me out, he'll get me out. And there's often times that we just sit and soak and say, God, I give, you're going to, tra- you got to change this. Like, I'm just going to have faith and I'm not going to do anything. I'm, I'm removing all personal responsibility of getting out of the mess I'm in. I'm just praying with great faith. But here's the thing. I've heard it put this way. This way. It's easier for God to, to steer, a, like it's easier to steer a moving car than it is to steer a parked car. Like if a car is parked and you're turning the wheel, ain't nothing happening. You're just making little marks on the pavement right there. And if you don't have power steering, it's impossible. You are not turning that wheel unless you have power steering. You can't turn the car. But if it's moving in a direction, gosh, the slightest little effort can change the whole trajectory of that vehicle. And God doesn't want us. And oftentimes we come to a big life decision. We say, God, you got to do this. I'm putting the car in park. I'm waiting. God, I don't know the right option. You got to open the door. Show me a sign. I'm putting the e-brake on, baby. I'm waiting on you. And then we might even turn the car off and say, God, I'm at my wits end. And you got to come through. And we shut the entire car off. 
And God's saying, no, 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 listen, I need people who are moving in the way of righteousness, doing the right thing in the circumstance they find themselves in with proactive effort to rectify the circumstances that they find themselves in. Just move in a direction. And God will say, no, no, bend this way, go this way. It's easier for God to move us and steer us when we have forward motion. And Joseph knows this. He's like, hey, I'm going to try everything in my power to get out of the pit and the hell that I'm in. The mess that I'm in, I'm going to do everything in my power to get out of this situation. But with humility and confidence of God, it's ultimately in your control. But I'm moving. I'm seizing an opportunity. So get moving and God can direct you. He's using his gifts. He's got humble confidence. He's giving God the glory, but he sees an opportunity to improve his situation and he takes it. And so no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, it's okay to be logical, rational, and reasonable to take opportunities to try to solve the mess that you are possibly in. Joseph doesn't sit there in his bitterness and go, woe is me, victim mentality. I've been wronged by my family. I've been wronged by Potiphar. I've been wronged by everybody. I'm mad at the world. No. Because here's the truth. People who are consumed with bitterness, I think he's forgiven his family. I think he's forgiven Potiphar. He's not living with the bitterness and the anger and the resentment towards those people. Because if he was, he wouldn't be able to be a blessing to others. Because those who are full of bitterness and resentment towards others provide no benefit to others. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. When we're hurt and we soak in a victim mentality of what's been done to us, or maybe we got there on our own and we're pushing blame on other people, we're so full of bitterness that we're unable to love and serve people. Because when we're so bitter, it turns us inward. It flips our whole worldview about us, our circumstance, our situation. It's selfish and it's prideful. It's everybody else's fault and somebody's got to fix this. God, you got to fix this. The reality is, is no, you can fix it. Do the next right thing. Be faithful with where you are regardless of how you got there and stop the victim mentality. Get rid of the bitterness. Extend the forgiveness that God has forgiven you to other people. Remove the angst between you and the world and humanity and your friends and your family and your coworkers and live free walking in the right direction. You can't serve others if you're full of bitterness. You can't love other people really well if you have bitterness towards them and the world and our culture and humanity. With empathy and grace, forgive them. And you can be free. And then you can be a blessing to other people. You can't serve others if you're angry at others. And it's often in serving others, you get to experience God's plan for your life. You're missing out on God's dream for your life when you hold on to those things. And you can't live out the greatness of God's kingdom by being a slave and a servant to all if you're holding on to all of that. And Joseph knows that. That's why he's chief inmate. He can serve others. He's not bitter. So now there's a second dream. Three days you'll be reinstated. Awesome. He says, remember me. Then the, cu- the, the baker's like, okay, three days. I had a dream of three days. It was good for him. Joey, here's my dream, man. Give me a good outcome. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cakes. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked goods or baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of 
eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head. Oh, good! He lifted up the cupbearer's head too. No, no. He's going to lift off your head. It's not the same thing. He's going to lift up your head from you and hang you from a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. I'm looking at this going, Joseph, did you really have to? Like, couldn't you just been like, man, this one's cloudy. And uh, I'm going to need to pray a little bit. I'll get back to you in about four days. All right. And let the dude live in peace for like two and a half, three more days. Why did he have to bring the honest truth when the outcome was not favorable or when it was uncomfortable? Joseph knows the interpretation. He knows it's going to happen. Three days, chop your head off, hang you from a tree. Birds are going to eat your flesh. It seems like, why, Joseph? It also seems like the internal investigation panned out. Baker's at fault. We're rolling his head. Justice has got to be served. And in three days, they're going to figure it out. And it was so. But Joseph shares the brutal honesty of the situation, regardless of the outcome. Here's the second life lesson I think Joseph has learned. Is that commit to telling the truth regardless of the outcome. Commit to telling the truth regardless of the outcome. Next one. Next one. Nathan. Next one. Sorry. He'd have been there a while. I told the truth when it was uncomfortable. I, I mean, there, we're going to probably have a conversation later. There's going to be some tension. You're like, you mess it up. How could you mess it up in one job? Tell the truth regardless of the outcome. He could have just delayed the news and we'd have had grace for Joseph. It's fine. That seemed appropriate. Why would he invite that level of awkwardness around the prison for the next two days? Hey, cupbearer, how you doing? I'm great, man. Thanks for the good news. Baker, how you doing? Seriously, Joey? Come on. You basically just told me I'm going to die in two days. You think it's going well for me? Like, Why would he invite that friction and that awkwardness? And then it hit me. Joseph already told the guys the interpretation is God's, not his. This is God's word. This is God's truth. And Joseph is committed to telling God's truth and, and holding to God's word when the, when the outcome is favorable or not favorable, when the outcome is comfortable for somebody or uncomfortable for somebody. He's unapologetically willing to say the truth in the hard things. It's God's word. He's committed to it in the good and the not so good. And as Jesus' followers, we should be obedient to his word when it's good and when it's not so good. When it makes us feel comfortable and it's like, yes. And when it's uncomfortable and we go, really? Are you sure you heard it right? His was three days and mine's three days. Joseph, you're wrong. The word of God's never wrong. And he's willing to share the honest, hard truth regardless of the circumstance. And so I'm here to tell you that we are a church that's unapologetically going to hold fast to the Word of God. I'm instructed to teach the Word of God for what it says and not what you want to hear. And there's things in our culture to where the Bible comes in contradiction with what we want to do in our lifestyle, and we want to change the Word of God to match our lifestyle. 
And I want you to know that we here and this staff and this team unapologetically will bring the truth if it's comfortable for you or uncomfortable for you. People want to change it for their own preference when it comes to their sexual preference of who they sleep with and how many times they sleep with them and where they sleep with them and all of that. When it comes to our identity, our DNA, our biology, they want to change and thwart it. When it comes to ethical, moral behaviors in the business and corporate world, when it comes to relationships with forgiveness and gossip, when it comes to leveraging our gifts and sacrifice and living as a slave and a servant, when those things come in contradiction to our life, we will hold fast to the Word of God, even if it's hard and uncomfortable. And Joseph got this. And that's why he shared the brutal, honest truth. And many of us will be faced at a crossroads sometime in our life with our journey with Jesus. Where our boss might be asking us to fudge numbers. That's the way we do the books around here. Well, that's just the way that we handle bids and jobs and clients and, 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 and customers. That's the way that we hire and the way we employ people. These are our values. These are our mission statements. These are our cultural statements. Here's our ideologies. Here's how we operate. And you're going to go... I don't know what to do. God's word says this and my company says this and you'll be faced with a decision of what you're going to do. In your marriages, there might be times in which telling the hard truth is not going to be so comfortable and you might have to confess and say, hey babe, I'm sorry. A romantic relationship at work, there's been some flirting and I'm so sorry. And maybe even to the point of where there's been some infidelity and an affair that has happened, you've got to come back and share the honest, hard truth, regardless of how difficult and uncomfortable it may be, so you can live out the truth in God's Word. Of confessing when we blow it, when we mess up, when we've been gossiping, or when we've been a compulsive liar, or we're plagued with insecurity through comparison. We've got to bring that up and deal with it, because God's Word says so. And it'll be hard, I know. But I promise the blessing that comes after will be way better. Take Joseph 11 years, 12 years before he's going to experience any of that. And we want to throw the towel in on day one, week one, month one, year one, and say, God, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I keep doing the right thing. I keep following your word. But gosh, circumstances and the outcomes are never favorable in my direction it seems like hold fast to his word do not compromise it share the honest truth in the good and the bad joseph keeps doing the right thing but things keep getting worse you see because you and i want cupbearer christianity we want everything to be made right in three days Something hard happens, a difficult situation, rub the genie in the lamp, ask for Jesus to do it, and we're reinstated in three days. Not how it works. It goes on. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. What a morbid birthday party. But just as Joseph said it would happen, it happened. The word of God is true. The investigation's over. They kill the one, they reinstate the other. And I'm sure Joseph wakes up on that third day and he sees the cupbearer and the chief baker being ushered out of the prison. He's like, I got my suitcase. It's freedom day, baby. I'm getting out. 
Because the cupbearer is going to tell Pharaoh, and I'm going to be free. Praise God, it's going to be a good day. The end of that day comes, and Joseph's still in prison. He's like, oh, it was his birthday. He probably didn't get a chance to have a conversation with him. No big deal. He'll tell me tomorrow. He'll come get me tomorrow. Day passes. Sure doesn't. Joseph's still in prison. Okay, Pharaoh's probably really hungover. <laughs> probably slept all day from the birthday celebration and the bash. And he'll tell him the next day. Day after day. Month after month. And we see it'll take two years. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two years. And my thought, it says this, verse 23, then chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. Two years. How could you forget somebody who played such a pivotal and instrumental role in his life of caring for him and showing him empathy and grace and mercy and love and sacrifice, using his title and position to serve the cupbearer, to be an instrument in forgiveness and reconciliation and reinstating him back into his position? How could you forget someone like that in your story? And then it hit me. There's someone who's done that in my life, in my story, and his name is Jesus Christ. Who showed me mercy that I didn't deserve, forgiveness I didn't deserve, forgiveness that I didn't deserve, reconciliation back to God, reinstating me to a title of child of God. And how often do we go through our life forgetting what he's done on our behalf? The pivotal person and role that he played in my life. And then when things are going well, I'm reinstated. I'm living it up. And it's all about me again. I achieved this. I earned this. I got this. Life is good. I have no need for Jesus anymore. Because it's easy to cling to Jesus in the valley, in the pit, in the prison, in the hell that you're going through. But on the mountaintops, it usually becomes about us because of our pride and ego. And how easy it is for us to forget Jesus in our story when things are going well. Joseph's still in this prison. Even though he did the work of God, even though he's serving others and sacrificing and using his titles, he's doing everything right. It seems like he has been for the last 11 years. But he's still in his prison and still in his pit. Amazing, my final life lesson. Commit to obedience regardless of circumstances. Commit to obedience regardless of circumstances. Because often we judge the outcome, well, sorry, we judge obedience by the outcome. Of saying, well, if it goes well for me, then obviously I was obedient. Well, that's a lie. Because you can do the right thing over and over and over and over again and have the wrong outcome over and over and over and over again. Especially in this culture and in this world, in this day, in this age. Judge obedience by faithfulness. Doing the right thing, regardless of the circumstance and the outcome you find yourself in, day after day, pushing your car forward and letting God direct your path. We want cupbearer Christianity because it's like, God, I'm still stuck in my job. I need a new job, this job, I'm at the crossroads, I can't do it anymore, but I need money to provide. God, you got to provide me with another job. God, I am, why am I still single? God, I've been praying for a spouse, but I'm still single, and it's been many years. God, what's going on? God, I'm married, we've been trying to have kids, and I'm still unable to conceive. I come to church, I pray, I give, I serve, what's going on, God? 
I'm struggling financially, but I'm sacrificing even through bridging the gap. My widow's mites, I'm giving it, but I'm still struggling. God, where are you? God, I got conflict with my teenagers and my coworkers. God, I got the, the diagnosis that's not good, and I'm still in my diagnosis through treatment. Why haven't you healed me? And we want cupbearer Christianity where it's instantaneously fixed and gone. God, don't you see what I'm doing? Don't you see my effort? Don't you see my obedience? The answer is yes, he does. But that doesn't mean the outcome is always going to be positive in our flesh and in the standards in which we have. And if you get your breakthrough, and some people do, don't be like the cupbearer and forget about Jesus and what he's done. And for the others, your breakthrough is coming. It just may not be in this life. I promise you, there will be a day where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more disease, no more angst, no more bitterness, nothing. And that's where your breakthrough may happen, not in this life, but in the next, because of Christ. And so regardless of you get your breakthrough or don't get your breakthrough, don't judge your obedience by the outcome or the circumstance that follows. Judge it by your faithfulness of staying true to his word, leveraging every title and position that you have for serving others so you can become great in the kingdom of God. Have a slave mentality, a servant's mentality. How can I love and sacrifice for others? Be honest with what's really going on in your life, even if it's hard unapologetically share the truth of what God's word is and live it out with integrity and stay faithful regardless of the circumstances that you find you're in because we all experience some level of comfort in this life and it's often the extreme and the hard circumstances that grows people's faith. When I see them, I go, man, your faith is contagious. It's beautiful. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. It's going to grow your faith. You're going to see God come through. You'll see the promise of God on the other side, in this life, maybe, or in the next. Store for yourself treasures in heaven. Choose long-suffering in a culture that wants instantaneous fixing of our circumstances. When something gets hard, we flake, we run, we try something else. Choose to be long-suffering, persevering, to have a God-like character be developed in you, to be a radical follower of Jesus Christ that can bring hope and goodness and glory and, and, and salvation to as many people as we can possibly bring it because we authentically live this out as slaves, as servants, not self-entitled and arrogant and prideful, but with great humility. Don't quit. Wherever you are, don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. I promise you something good's coming. And let's serve and let's sacrifice like Christ to impact people because they are what matters. Father, would you empower us to do this really well? Father, I pray that you would just cultivate in us a servant's heart, a slave mentality of where nothing is beneath us. We'll do whatever you ask. We'll live true to your word. We'll be a light in our office, in our workplace, in our schools, in our community, in our families, in our own house. And you would empower us by your spirit to do that. And we won't be perfect. But even in our imperfection, you can make it perfect by your power. Give us the humble confidence to embrace our gifts, our talents, our abilities, and steward what you have given us 
extremely well. God, we thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you for you being the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We thank you that you rode in knowing that you were going to be crucified and killed for our benefit so that our outcome of life would go better because we could have eternity with God and we have salvation in the name of Jesus because you were willing to come in on Palm Sunday. And we celebrate that and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.